This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Welcome to the Windgrin podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we have Andy Rebhan on the show, who is currently the Senior Vice President and Digital Officer for El Pollo Loco. Before making his mark on El Pollo Loco, Andy played a significant marketing role at both McDonald's and the Ford Motor Company. It's going to be a great episode. Let's get into it. How do the Bose compare to the AirPods, by the way? So I'll make this story a little bit more politically correct. I was out drinking with my friends two weekends ago for college football. And one of my friends was hating on the AirPods Pro. And I was like, so what's so much better than AirPods Pro? And he pulled out the Bose things. And I listened to them and I was like, oh my God, these are so amazing. And then I looked uh, on Amazon and they had a Black Friday deal for $80 off. So I bought these for $199. These are just like, the sound is really good. I really feel like if I put these in my ears, I have no idea what's going on around me. The AirPods Pro, you can still, even with the noise cancellation, hear a screaming baby or hear something else. This thing is just like... I feel like I'm in a, a metaverse or something. That's awesome. If someone from Bose is listening, this might be the right podcast for you to sponsor. We already yeah, have right. our first. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're so excited to have you. You bet. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me. So we were just talking before we started recording. After school, you, you lived in Detroit for a couple of years? I did. So I was really lucky right out of college to get a job opportunity with Ford Motor Company. The year was 2008. I think it was uh, probably one of the most challenging years for the economy. Uh, gas prices at the time were at $4, which is now, uh, I think, a normality across the United States. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I decided to roll the dice, move to Detroit, and uh, was happy to be a resident there for about three and a half years. So Ford was hiring in 2008? They were, believe it or not. I got in about four days before they had a hiring freeze. So this was, uh, you know, I think I started June 2nd and they had a hiring freeze on June 5th. So it was pretty wild. I got in right before they stopped hiring and uh, it was great. It was a great experience, great opportunity. Wow. And I'm sure you learned a ton from the work that you were doing, but it must have also been an incredible learning experience to see what was going on with the auto industry in 2008. What was that experience like? Yeah, I think it really, you know, just gave me an opportunity to step up and lead a lot differently than I probably would have normally had the opportunity to do. The company was going through major restructuring. There was a fairly new leader at the time who's now considered to be one of the greatest CEOs of all time, Alan Mulally. And, mm -hmm. you know, he brought this idea and thinking to the company of one Ford, one team, one plan, one goal. And it really had this whole notion of everybody kind of rowing in the same direction and everybody believing in the plan and not having the suppliers fight the company and the company fight the dealers. And it was just one of those, I would call it keystone moments that really just changed the trajectory of the company. It was unbelievable company to work for, unbelievable dealers, and probably some of my fondest memories from my professional career at Ford. That's so interesting. Did you end up taking that job out of school because it was a role in marketing or because of Ford itself? You know, I was walking around a career fair at University of Wisconsin in our basketball arena. And it was so funny because I really didn't have Ford on my radar that day. And I ended up meeting a recruiter for Ford. And, you know, I think sometimes recruiters are just really good salespeople. And I, you know, when she said, hey, would you ever consider working for Ford Motor Company? And the back of my mind, I was like, there's absolutely no way. There's no way I'm going to move to Detroit. But 
things led to things and the opportunity just seems so fascinating. And, you know, being 21 at the time, you kind of can have that opportunity to roll the dice a little bit. And for me, it was just one of those things where I was like, you know what, if this doesn't work, you know, you're going to be able to pivot quickly and get a new opportunity. You're young. Uh, but if this works, this could be one of the most amazing experiences of your life. And I was hoping the latter would be the case. And it was. It's awesome. Did you spend any time in downtown Detroit while you were there? I did. I did. I actually still have probably about four or five jerseys from the Red Wings. Uh, my <laughs> friends were huge Red Wings fans. And I kind of... Yes, exactly. I was. I came from a LA Kings and I converted to a Detroit Red Wings fan. Man, there's a reason why it's called Hockey Town USA. And uh, just those fans are so passionate. The games are so fun. And it's great to be downtown because I think everything is really close to one another. You have Comerica, you have Ford Field. It's a great downtown area. So really love spending time there. It is. I lived in downtown Detroit from 2013 through 2015. And there is something so special to your point. Everything's so close to each other. It's a cool city and something special about being in Detroit as it's rebuilding where, you know, typically out of school, you move to a city and you care about your professional growth, your close network of friends, but something about being in a city where it's a renaissance that culture is so special. And I'm sure you, you got to feel that firsthand, like right as, as Detroit started its rebuilding process. Yeah, completely agree. It's, uh, it was great to kind of just see that city come to life. I think, you know, given the auto industry in 2008, it was, uh, it was kind of one of those low periods. But very quickly, as the US auto industry rebounded, you just saw the city come more to life and you saw a lot of building downtown. And, you know, one of the things that's always funny about Detroit, and I don't think people realize, is you can pretty much throw a rock and hit. Canada, which is right across the river. So, you know, obviously I had an opportunity to go to Canada too, which is super cool. It's the, I think it's the only place in the country. Maybe there's one other place where you have to go South in order to, to get the, yes, exactly. This is very true. And I actually did the Detroit international half marathon. So you actually run over the border, over the ambassador bridge, which is super cool. It's a really fun race to do if you haven't done it. That is awesome. So, all right. So you spent a couple of years in Detroit working at Ford Motor Company. What came next after Ford for you? Yeah. So um, I was in Detroit for technically about a year and a half. Then I moved to Kansas City with Ford and then back to Detroit. So a total of three and a half years at in Detroit and then a year and a half in Kansas City. And then I had a mentor who worked for McDonald's and I met him kind of very early on in my Ford career at a experiential event in New Orleans, Louisiana. And we stayed in touch and about five years into Ford, he said, hey, would you ever consider working for McDonald's? And you know, being a marketer and knowing just the incredible prowess that McDonald's has just in terms of the history of the brand, you know, I jumped at the opportunity, really thought that it was just an incredible brand to be a part of. And in 2013, I moved from Detroit to Boston, essentially from Mustangs to McNuggets and started my career at McDonald's. So if my research serves me right, you were behind spearheading the Uber Eats McDelivery. Is that right? Yeah. So I was definitely part of the team that helped launch McDelivery. One of the early markets was Atlanta and Florida. And so that was kind of one of the first markets that came to launch. We had a team at National that was really dedicated in doing the majority of the launch. But from a local perspective, we were one of the first markets to go out with it. It was uh, an incredible opportunity to kind of see it come to life on the ground. I was living in Chicago in about 
2014, 2015. And that was when Uber Eats was really just starting to get into the delivery game. And they had this kind of different business model. But then seeing your restaurant brand kind of own it on the platform and just do an incredible job growing off-premise sales, it was just such a cool opportunity to be a part of. And especially in Atlanta, the market was just extremely receptive to the new idea. And we had great press, great coverage from it. And it was fun to just be able to deliver Big Mac and French fries all over the city. Hmm. Was McDonald's the first major brand to partner with a food delivery service? Yeah, McDonald's was one of the first to partner with Uber Eats. Uh, you know, one of the other early adopters was Starbucks. So okay. you know, we were really lucky to get foot in the door early and quickly. And the brand just had an incredible uh, partnership with them at the time. And it was a really fun experience just to see the business grow. For sure. And internally at McDonald's, what was that year's initiatives? What was the problem that you were looking to solve that ended up yielding yeah. pursuing a partnership with Uber Eats? I think the biggest piece is just consumers are changing the way that they like to experience the brand. And in an era where digital is growing so rapidly, you know, you had a lot of the younger generation of consumers that were really wanting the ability to have delivery of their favorite restaurant chain to their front door. And, you know, delivery was slowly picking up in terms of the market share that it was, it was gathering. And for us to continue to be competitive and you know, be that market leader, that was the decision that was made to really just try to expand our reach and extend and allow the opportunity for consumers through the use of their phone to get McDonald's delivered to their doorstep. And thank you for for doing that for us. Yeah, Uh, no problem, man. I'm sure that there was an in-depth SWOT analysis that went into whether you should pursue this partnership or not. What were the key threats? What, what, what would have been the reasons that this partnership wouldn't have been good for McDonald's? You know, I don't think there's really ever, I would call it threats, especially, you know, I think McDonald's is seen as the pioneer and leader. And so if there is something that, you know, they kind of see as an obstacle, I would say that the franchisees, the employees there, they figure out a way to figure it out. That's what innovation, that's what leadership looks like. And I think the great thing about McDonald's that they do so well is you take bits and pieces of, you know, what would be the United States and and you test every restaurant brand, every large restaurant brand in the world. You know, they try to get a lot of data prior to rolling out a major initiative and they test and they try to see, you know, what's working, what's not working, where can we get better Uh, What are efficiencies that we can realize? And I think, you know, similar, we did that in this circumstance and we realized some of the kinks, I think, initially, and then we were able to adapt and be that leader and have a lot of other restaurant chains look at us and say, wow, McDonald's did a really good job with this. For sure. And you mentioned franchisees. With an initiative like this, do you need to get the buy-in from all the franchisees? How does that process work? Yeah, I think it really depends on what restaurant brand you're a part of in terms of how that works. You know, the franchisees are a huge piece of how McDonald's goes to market. And so their support with that initiative was huge. And I think, you know, when you look at just the way that different restaurant brands are in terms of geographic density, you know, certainly big cities, there's always a huge opportunity for delivery because I think a lot of people at the time working in offices, there's not necessarily, you know, coverage of you know, call it McDonald's or Starbucks or whatever other restaurant chain. And people sometimes can't step away from work. So there's that huge opportunity to have that food delivered, you know, to the front office or to, you know, whatever part of the city that you might be in at the time. And we saw that as a huge opportunity. And I think, you know, especially like city centers and hubs. So like, I know you're in Philadelphia, but like Boston, Philly, New York, just a huge opportunity to just have somebody on the ground there delivering the product. Right. What I find so interesting about 
you know, massive partnerships, initiatives like Uber Eats and McDelivery is there's such clear benefits to both sides of the puzzle. It must have been great for user acquisition for Uber Eats. And of course, the ability for, for consumers to get food, McDonald's easily at home is a huge win. And for a couple of years, you couldn't go outside, at least in Philly, without seeing a billboard or, or something, you know, marketing that partnership and the fact that you could get McDelivery on Uber Eats. And something that I always wonder is, those marketing campaigns, who is that driven by? Is that driven by Uber Eats and they're getting buy-in from McDonald's to feature McDonald's on billboards or the other way around where it's driven by McDonald's and, and featuring the opportunity to get on Uber Eats? It kind of just depends on the nature of the partnership and the promotion. There's times where it's led by the delivery provider. There's times where it's led by the restaurant chain. And that's something that you know, it's pre-established sometimes in a contract or sometimes if there's a big idea and either Uber Eats or McDonald's wants to do something, one of the sides approaches one another with what that big idea is. So fast forward, you're now with El Pollo Loco. Yes, sir. Well, first, can you tell us a little bit more about El Pollo Loco? Yeah. So El Pollo Loco is a, a regional chicken brand. We are a fast, casual fire grilled chicken concept. And so we're really known for our fire grilled chicken, our long cooking process that we have for our chicken, which is slowly marinated. It tastes incredible. <laughs> I eat it pretty much almost every single day. And uh, we're in six states. We're in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Texas, and Louisiana. And we've recently made some announcements that we're going to be expanding geographically east, not quite to Philadelphia yet, but we are going to be going to Denver. We've announced plans in uh, Oklahoma and in Kansas. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. What's your go-to on the menu? You know, I usually like the chicken tostada salad, double chicken tostada salad. But I would say recently, because it's the holiday times, we have this really good uh, pasole verde, which is a, a Mexican chicken soup. It's absolutely delicious. And then I usually get a tamale or two to accompany it. So we have these really good chicken tamales on the menu. So, you know, one of the cool things about our concept is we pretty much have a, a menu that's very consistent throughout the year. And then like most restaurant chains, we'll have an LTO here or there. And so I'm really loving the uh, LTO right now. Love it. I still haven't gotten my hands on uh, El Pollo Loco and I need to change that very soon. We'll see if we can arrange that if you're in one of our markets. <laughs> How many store locations are there today? So yeah, we have about 500, 480 to be exact. And uh, you know we're growing, like I said, we're opening up uh, a couple new stores in the next few weeks and it's our plan to continue to expand. And is that expansion, is that fueled by more corporate store openings or franchising El Pollo Loco? It's primarily through franchising. You know, I think our growth strategy is primarily asset light. And so we're looking to grow via franchisees. So I love on your LinkedIn that it mentions that your job was to modernize marketing at El Pollo Loco. Uh, along with many other things. You wear a lot of different hats and, and you've yep. achieved so much. But what does that mean? What does it mean to modernize marketing? Yeah, I think we talked on this a little bit earlier, but I think when Bernardo Coca, who's uh, our former CEO, shared with me the opportunity to come in and lead the digital organization, there was definitely just, just a perception that El Pollo Loco was not really seen as a digital leader in the space. We didn't have a very high digital media spend. Our loyalty program was not very, I don't know, call it tied together very well. We didn't have segmentation. We didn't look at data and analytics. And I think if you're going to be a modern progressive uh, restaurant company, you really have to have 
a digital, call it a superpower to really just continue to grow, continue to fuel what the brand needs just to be modern and seen as a consumer savvy brand. And so, you know, Bernard and I had a conversation about what is it exactly that the brand wants to be? What does it want to stand for? And really the opportunity was to really just relaunch our loyalty program. It was to significantly shift some of our media spend into digital. It was to really overhaul our social media creative, our email creative, build our off-premise delivery channels. And then you probably saw some headlines that we were the first restaurant chain to launch drone delivery. And so we did that as well, which was a really good opportunity with our partners at Flytrex. So I think that was initially the intent of how you modernize your restaurant brand. How is the drone delivery going? It's good. You know, it's funny. I think people are always wondering, oh, can I just get it today? And, you know, what I say to them is, well, we're still doing it by invite only. You know, there's still obviously some major restrictions with the FAA and hurdles that, you know, Flytrex is working to overcome. But, you know, some of our most valued loyalty members have been able to experience it. And it's just fun when you get to see it in action, because usually it just stops traffic and people like stare up at the sky like it's a UFO or something. But there's this branding of Air Loco on the side of the drone, which, you know, people, you know, kind of put two and two together that it's El Pollo Loco. But it's really cool, man. I think the biggest piece is is it's fast, it's efficient, it's more cost effective for us, more cost effective for the consumer. And, you know, it was really an opportunity to just lead the space and, and be first to market. And uh, we're super proud of them. It's awesome. So you join El Pollo Loco. They have a delicious product, but a little bit behind on the times or, or not as modern as they could be in terms of their digital marketing strategy. I'm sure you had a future state of where you want it to be in terms of their digital strategy. But the hardest part is creating something or knowing where to start. Yeah. Where did you start? How did you know where to go first? I think the biggest piece is when you're brought in and the organization is looking to accelerate growth, you have to see where the biggest opportunity lies in terms of how can I turn a profit? How can I build an emotional connection with the brand, with the consumer? And I think really the first thing was our loyalty program. And the loyalty program, that's essentially our most valued consumer with the brand. And the first thing I did was I called our top 50 customers and I said, what's working? What's not working? Tell me what you like about other loyalty programs that you use. And that was a means for me to really just understand and listen to the consumer. I think you know, modern marketing, modern career building, you know, you have a 30, 60, 90 day plan. Part of my 30, 60, 90 day plan was really to sit down and listen to our consumers, because I think that there was a lot of things that I learned at McDonald's, but, you know, El Pollo Loco is a different brand and you have to kind of understand the target consumer and who you're trying to go after. So the loyalty program was my biggest goal. I think that was where I started. And a lot of that was because it was and still is and is a, a huge revenue driver for the corporation. So going back to McDonald's for one second, I guess it's relevant mm-hmm. to both El Pollo Loco and McDonald's. How similar are consumer habits in different parts of the country? Meaning are the most popular menu items at McDonald's in California the same as the most popular menu items in Texas? No, there's definitely some menu differentiation. There's menus that are higher beef markets. There's, there's some items in some parts of the country that skew chicken. You know, obviously weather patterns change. So there's some seasonality to coffee drinking. There's some seasonality to frozen beverages. If you have that on your menu. So, you know, it ebbs and flows, but I would say that there are some markets that over index in certain proteins over index and in, in healthy versus fried. 
And so, you know, you do a lot of consumer research to try to understand where that is. And you look at sales patterns, you make a recommendation, and then you decide whether or not you put your hat into the rink with a certain product. So going off of that, so does your digital marketing strategy differ in all different parts of the country or the world well, I think, for a global brand? Yeah. I mean, I think the cool thing about digital is you have the opportunity to target a lot more precisely. Right. You know, there's obviously the ability to identify unique customer segments. There's obviously building of habits online, you know, as consumers go through different types of apps and they, you know, click on different websites with cookies gives you the power to do a lot of different things. I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of marketers are trying to figure out is how you function in a cookie-less world, which I know every brand marketer in the world is trying to solve at the moment. But I think for now, you know, the biggest piece is we work with an incredible media agency initiative that really helps us kind of lead the charge in terms of understanding where we should place our digital bets and how we do a better job of segmentation and personalization. And, you know, we try to reduce our cost pers and customer acquisition costs to really benefit our brand overall. So jumping back to El Pollo Loco, you saw the main opportunity at first is, is a loyalty program. Yep. What did that loyalty program look like for El Pollo Loco? I think the biggest piece was just the way we were communicating with the customer. So you know, let's say Evan's a guy who comes into El Pollo Loco and he's typically just ordering a chicken burrito. He comes there for lunch. He comes there for dinner. He's a chicken burrito customer. Well, unfortunately, the way that the company used to function was we would send Evan still everything. Like, so it didn't matter if Evan was a single guy ordering his chicken burrito, if he was a married guy with a family, you know, we didn't really do a good job of understanding how Evan wanted to interact with the brand. So Evan would receive family meal offers. He would receive offers for tortilla soup. He would receive offers for desserts. And so like the beauty of a loyalty program is you have the data of what Evan typically buys from El Pollo Loco. Mm -hmm. And so we were sending every email to every individual. We were offering a lot of discounts to Evan, even though he didn't need to be discounted. And so when you look at the data and you really get a better understanding of who your customer is, who you want the customer to become, this was just a huge opportunity for us to really do a much better job of personalizing the communication with Evan and other like customers and really just trying to differentiate the way that we wanted Evan to interact with the brand. And then you're probably like, so what is success look, right? So for us, success was Evan was opening up more emails. Evan was visiting the brand more frequently. We could attract Evan during different day parts. So there's a lot of number of different characteristics that you can do to try to increase that frequency, increase that average check. And you know, we put in a lot of measures that really allowed us to accomplish that. Interesting. So the goal of a loyalty program, just saying it back to you is, well, ultimately to drive more traffic, get, get Evan to come to the store more. And the way to do that is to more effectively collect first party data or, you know, just sentiment data about what that person likes, what that person cares about in order to message to them more effectively what's going to drive them to the store. Absolutely. And I think the other big piece, which I think sometimes gets lost because as a as a company that you know has shareholders, you obviously want to increase shareholder value and make sure that you're continuing to drive sales and revenue. But I think the other piece with the loyalty program is you want to try to build the emotional connection with the brand. And I apologize to the viewers because I can't see this on screen right now, but what I'm showing Evan is this is a gold chips and guacs pass. And mm. so we, in August of this past year, to some of our top loyalty consumers, we sent them what's the equivalent of Willy Wonka's golden ticket 
we sent them a, a gold card that essentially allowed them to get free chips and guac for a month from us as a result of their loyalty, the brand loyalty of their business. And really just tried to do different things to try to make sure they know we like them, we care about them, and we appreciate them for their regular patronage. Love that. There's a stat that I find really interesting that over 60% of consumers prioritize buying from brands that support initiatives that they care about. Outside of delivering the right messaging about the right product to the right people, how much do you think about you know what you're doing outside of the restaurant when it comes to building loyalty amongst your customer base? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely want to make sure that we are felt and we have a presence in our local communities. I think, you know, there's been a number of initiatives over the last few years that we've really done to try to make sure that the consumers and the markets that we do business know that we support and fund initiatives that are very community driven, that we're behind the communities that we operate in. And it's very important to us as a brand to make sure that we know that, you know, we're present in the markets that we operate in. And there's a number of examples from the last couple of years where everything from We Are Latina to fund Hispanic businesses that were disproportionately impacted by the COVID pandemic to doing different types of scholarships for moms who wanted to essentially accelerate their careers. We call them madre ships who wanted to make sure that we appreciated moms, families, et cetera. So there's a number of different initiatives that we've funded and that we believe in that are really true and core to our brand and our heritage that uh, have been very successful over the last few years. Love that. So Andy, you mentioned at the top of the call last night was a a late night and you apologize for your appearance, but I, I don't know why. You look great. Thank you. Why was last night a late night? So last night, we just kind of did the the final canvassing of a new initiative we launched today, which is a website called locogiftsandgear.com. And it's really an opportunity for us to represent our proud Latin heritage and our connection to L.A. And, you know, our brand, one of the things that we've done in terms of our positioning has been to call it our kind of our food and the culture L.A. Mex. And we've partnered with these really awesome creators on kind of three different capsules of merchandise, whether it be a hat, a t-shirt, a skateboard, a surfboard. We actually have a $7,000 bike on the website created by a guy named Manny in Compton, Manny Silva. And uh, it's just a really, really cool site, really cool gear. And it's something that's very true to us. And we're really proud of it. So we were just going through final revisions of the website last night. It's the first time we've kind of delved into this space. It's something that a lot of, I think, QSR brands are doing at the moment, but we wanted to do something that was truly unique to us and in a way that people would expect only El Pollo Loco to do it in. I love it. How did you all come to the decision to to open a merch store? Yeah, I think that, you know, you've seen a lot of really successful collaborations in the space. And when, you know, you're trying to extend the reach of a brand and think about ways that you can continue to have an emotional connection with your consumers, not only in the markets that you do business, but in kind of future markets, these collaborators and artists have a big following outside of probably what's traditionally just El Pollo Loco. And uh, we wanted to partner with people who were unique, true to us, and really allow us to extend the brand in kind of a unique, fun, interesting, cultural capacity. And this was a way to do it. And, you know, we had a number of uh, agency partners who worked on this Vitro Primary Color Initiative, our media agency, so and uh, Edible, our PR agency. So there's a lot of different players who were involved with this and a lot of people on the corporate side who spent a good amount of time on it. And so we're really proud with the way it came together. And, you know, hopefully we'll sell a few things. 
Well, my wife is in need of a new bike. I'm going to check out that. <laughs> okay. It's probably out of my budget, but uh, it sounds awesome. Awesome, man. Can't wait to check that out. Last topic I want to touch upon. You had mentioned before the, the podcast episode that if you could teach a college course, the topic would be how to differentiate yourself and make friends in corporate America, which I love. There needs to be more tactical courses like this and personal finances and so much more, in my yeah. opinion. But yeah, why is this topic important to you? Yeah, I think especially now that we're still in a remote state, I think that people are lots of times very focused on business, 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 business work. And I think there's a lot of times where you're in a corporate situation where you don't necessarily have the opportunity to create that rich personal connection that I think is is needed. I think that lots of times, you know, the agency client relationship is is just very agency client like. And I have a rule with my agencies, they cannot use the client word. It's partner, it's collaborator. Client is just way too hierarchical for me. And uh, I like everybody who is part of a team. And I think I got to see this really early on at Ford with Alan and his leadership and that organizational culture that you want all the oars to row in the same direction. And, you know, I really feel like relationships are a huge part of, you know, getting things done in corporate America. If you're looking for something, you know, while you're at that company, before, during, after, you never want to burn a bridge. You always want to keep the door open. And for me, I just think it's so, so important to maintain relationships, differentiate yourself with, you know, picking up the phone, calling people, asking how they're doing. And when you're asking them how they're doing, you ask them, how are you really doing? Just by adding that word really and emphasizing really, you're going to get okay. a different response. And so I learned that in grad school at Kellogg. I can't take credit for that, but that was something that I heard and I use and continue to use because I think it really just gets people to, to smile and perk up. So if you could go back and give College Andy some advice about how to level up at differentiating yourself and, and making friends in corporate America, what can they be doing in college or as a recent graduate to, to level up in this capacity? Yeah, I think from a college standpoint is I would just say be involved and continue to be involved and do club sports, do organizations, be involved on campus, because I think the more you can learn, the more uh, employment you can have prior to taking that big or small first corporate job, you're just going to set yourself up for success. And I think one of the things that I know is very intimidating as a college student or as a recent grad is like you fear failure. But I think as you are younger in your career, younger in life, you have the ability to fail more often and use that as a learning opportunity, which I believe if you fail early and you fail often, it's going to accelerate your growth in the future. And so when we as an organization make mistakes or my team makes mistakes, we really like to think of some of these things as like little bets. It's a great book. I read it during the pandemic. And when you make little bets, you look at companies like Amazon, Netflix, Google, what they do is they take, you know, what is a probably a significant amount of money for them, but for other companies, they can scale and it can be smaller. But you take a little bet, you try to see how it works. If it works great, you iterate, you pour more money into it. If it fails, it fails and you fail quickly and you learn from it. And so it's one of my big philosophies, I'd say. I love that. Have you read the book about building your flywheel? I have. Yeah. So it's shooting those bullets to see what the, the next uh, flywheel is. Absolutely. Yeah. Great philosophy for sure. Yeah. Are there any failures that are top of mind that were most impactful to forming who you are today? Oof. I would say not necessarily a failure, but I think as you move forward and accelerate your career further, 
I think probably the biggest thing that you learn is you want to stay true to yourself and stay true to your values. And I think one of the things that you've probably gathered as you've listened to the podcast is that I've moved around a lot. And, you know, what's crazy is I already have Marriott titanium status for life at my (laughs) age, which is a little bit scary. But I think just the values in terms of like what is important to you evolve and they change a little bit. And as you get older, I think, you know, you definitely want to be closer to family. You want to be able to allow them to just be a part of your life. And I think sometimes you get very mired depending on where you're at in your career and what your goals are in just the day-to-day grind. And I think that's probably, I wouldn't call it a failure, but I would call it a just a, an evolution of what I think is important in just the way I look at life and business. All right. Well, now you're back in LA where you grew up. So, uh, <laughs> I am. You're I practicing am. what you preach. So that's, Yes. That's great. Andy, this has been super insightful, interesting, fun for me, at least. There's one last section of the podcast. It's the lightning round where I'm going to ask okay. you four questions. And we've got two minutes to answer all four questions. So first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Let's fire away. All right. First question. What's your favorite youth sports memory? Playing soccer at the Rose Bowl. I was on a soccer travel team. This was right before the World Cup. I want to say it was 1994. And our travel team was at the Rose Bowl. So playing soccer at the Rose Bowl is probably the first thing that comes to mind as favorite sports memory. That's awesome. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be the next Vince Scully. So I have a passion for sports broadcasting. And Vince Scully, for those of you who don't know, is a very famous Dodgers announcer. And uh, if I wasn't doing my job at El Pollo Loco, I would try to take uh, Oral Hershiser or Joe Davis's place as the play-by-play announcer for the Dodgers. Amazing. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? I really like Spotify. I think that they were able to take, you know, the way that consumers listen, their habits, their interaction with the brand and really commercialize it in a way that doesn't feel overly markety to consumers. And I think that people are really excited for that every single year at the end of the year. I think they've done it for like, I don't know, five or seven years now. And it's just something that's very friendly on social media. And it just is a way that the brand continue to be a part of the conversation. So hats off to Spotify. Nicely done. Finally, what is a cause that you like to support? I'm part of a board called One Day to Remember. They're based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was started by one of my closest friends from undergrad, uh, Rachel Anton. And their mission is to provide family, specifically a kid, with a memorable day with for parents who have a terminal illness. And so it's kind of equivalent maybe of like a -a make-a-wish type situation where you really try to take the family out and allow them to have one enjoyable, memorable day, whether it be you go to a stadium, you go on a vacation and you go to an amusement park, but it really captures the essence of really spending the time together, creating that moment, creating that memory. I'm very passionate about it. I'm on the board, like I said, and uh, it's a really great cause. So I encourage you to look it up and support it. I love that. Andy, this was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks again for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Wingren Podcast with Andy Rebhan. As a recap, we discussed modernizing your marketing strategy in a digital age, the why behind a loyalty program, the Uber Eats, McDonald's McDelivery partnership, and how failure is an essential part of growth. It was a great episode. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. See you next time, everyone. Play on.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.